Hey guys, what's up? It's here. Hey guys, what's up? Here's another installment of Flick City. I have really, two really good interviews for, for you guys this time. Oliver Hermanis, he's a director of Living, and also Kazuo Ishiguro. And he is the screenwriter behind Living. And Ishiguro, you might know him from his previous work, his novels, Never Let Me Go, and also The Remains of the Day. It was a rare, huge honor to speak to Kazuo and also with Oliver Hermanis. I previously spoke to Hermanis for Mafi. Now, Living, it centers on a bureaucrat, a Londoner, a London bureaucrat played by Bill Nye. He plays this guy, Mr. Williams, and he is the head of this public works section of London, I believe. And his job is to basically pass the buck. He and his co-workers, they, they come into work very dour and solemn and just no humor whatsoever. And what they do is they just fill out paperwork or just pass paperwork. And essentially what they do is they there's a lot of paper on their desk and folders, meaning these are requests to do different things. And there's so many tasks that have yet to be done. And it seems like their work on a daily basis is to take various requests that come into their, their office and then pass the buck to another department. So that's very interesting. And what happens is when Mr. Williams learns he has a fatal, he's terminally ill, he decides to actually start making something out of his life, whether it be trying to build to get a motion passed to get a public park built in a uh, just sort of a uh, poor, depressed section of a neighborhood or maybe an undeveloped plot of land. He's trying to do that. And he's also trying to live his final days with some pleasure or just some kind of He's trying to make the best out of his final days. That is a premise of living. It co-stars Amy Lee Wood as a co-worker who ultimately befriends him out of work. And they have a really cool platonic and tender relationship, friendship. And also Alex Sharp co-stars as the new employee of Mr. Williams. He's the bright, what, what is the term? Bright-tailed or bright-eyed? Anyways, he's the idealistic new employee of Mr. Williams. And you get to see a little bit of the movie through his eyes as well. Now, one of the things I, this, again, this is a remake of Ikiru, and you can currently watch Ikiru as of this recording, I believe on the Criterion channel, yeah, on the Criterion channel, and HBO Max, okay, and both, both of these are great streaming options, and the movie itself is a classic, and it's a tall order for them to actually remake just a movie that is so widely revered. And I believe they do. They do a great job. Living is one of, I love Ikiru and I also love living. It's one of those rare instances where the remake is just as good, in my opinion, as as the original. Yeah. So the interviews themselves are really interesting as well. Oliver Hermanis is a huge cinephile and he spends, I guess, a couple of minutes towards the last part of the interview. He talks about his love for Alfred Hitchcock films. And if you're a fan of that movie Rope or just Hitchcock himself is a craftsman. You're going to want to listen to this interview with Hermanus. And he also talks about working with the composer for this movie, as well as the DP for living some really great behind the scenes material for, for living. Okay. As far as Kazuo Ishiguro, just, it was great because I, I try not to fawn over too much over this interview, but I asked him about working with various directors during his career, like uh, Mark Romanek and also James Ivory, James Ivory, obviously, for The Remains of the Day, and Romanek for, um, or Romanek, I don't know how you pronounce that name, for that film, Never Let Me Go. So, and he's done some really other other great stuff in on a cinema level, but 
mainly Kazuo's Ishiguro is mainly known as a celebrated novelist. Okay, so some really good stuff. Oh, during the interview, I also talked to Kazuo about his love for another Japanese filmmaker, Yasujiro Ozu. Ozu's Ozu, and one of my all-time favorites is this movie called Late Spring. Personally, I prefer Late Spring over Ikiru. Ikiru is a lot more actually stateside, a lot better known than Late Spring. And I, ha- it's basically you're. I'm comparing two A plus plus movies, so it's just basically my personal taste. I really love Late Spring. Google it if you haven't already. It's, it gets a stamp of approval from Kazuo Ishiguro. Check out Late Spring, whether wherever it's actually streaming. FYI, I believe if you go on YouTube, you might be able to see Late Spring full feature version as well. So check out, check that out from Ozu. But this is not, sorry about that, that. This is not an Ozu episode. This is a Kurosawa episode. Also, lastly, Oliver Hermanis talks about this previous Akira Kurosawa film called High and Low. Great, great movie. If you love action and suspense thriller stuff, you're going to love High and Low. So also, there's a lot of movies to check out. But right now, let's just focus on living. Living is a top five for me. I was thinking top five, but top 10. But yeah, it's a top five film for me this year. Really love this movie. Currently available in theaters. It's hitting, it's now in theaters in New York and LA, and it'll expand to wider markets come latter part of this month and hopefully towards the new year, new year. Hopefully Bill Nye gets a little bit of Oscar love, Oscar nomination love for his lead portrayal as Mr. Williams or definitely the hopefully this movie gets best score nominations and I hope right now as as we speak it has a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes by the critics I love this movie so much unfortunately my buddy over at Cinematics Bruce Perky did not like living he's a fan of Akiru and he believed that this remake didn't live up to the original and it fell way short of the mark. So we'd love to hear what you guys think of living. But here are, first of all, my interview with Oliver. will be Oliver Hermanis will be first. And then with Kazuo Ishiguro, we'll round out the podcast. Now, big warning. The Kazuo, during the interview, he gives a little bit of a spoiler regarding a narrative shift in Ikiru. I mean, not in Ikiru, regarding living. Well, yeah, it's a spoiler that is actually in Ikiru and as well as in Living. So I would suggest if you have not seen Ikiru or Living, check out the Oliver Hermanis interview. And then if you want, go back to the Kazuo Ishiguro interview because he has some really great stuff about what motivated him as a writer. One of the biggest life lessons he learned as a writer, as a youth. Okay. So that's, I'm not going to spoil that for you as well. Anyways, again, Oliver Hermanis, that's pretty much a non-spoiler interview. But the Kazuo Ishiguro, if you don't mind spoilers, give it a listen. But if you if you want something spoiled, yeah. I mean, if you don't want anything spoiled, do not listen to it until you see Ikiru and Living. I'm going to be quiet now. Here are my interviews with Oliver Hermanis and then Kazuo Ishiguro, Living now in theaters, New York, LA, as of December 23rd. Thank you guys for listening to us on Cinematics and have a great holidays. Bye, guys. Pleasure to meet you, Oliver. We we spoke before over with uh, Mafi a couple years back. So, pleasure. Nice to see you again, Greg. Yeah, yeah Greg, Greg Shuzvasti with Deepest Dream. First off, my first question is, I'm a huge Akira Kurosawa fan. Redbeard and, of course, Akira are my favorite films of his. Growing up as a cinephile yourself, how where did you put Akira in your list? Or is this a movie that came to you later in your, your filmmaking journey? 
definitely came to me at film school when I was in London at film school 100 years ago. But we did a season of Kurosawa, I remember. I, I went to a film school in London where you had to watch so many movies a week. I think our watching list was like 21 films a week. So you ultimately were watching three films a day just to keep up, uh, which is a lot because you still had to go to classes and you're still making films and you would watch movies in the middle of the night. And we were young enough to do it. So my Kurosawa kind of wash was was very rapid, I remember. And, you know, I I remember Rashomon. Yes, I remember Seven Samurai. But in fact, the one that I watched the most ever since was a film called High and Low. That's my, probably my personal Kurosawa favorite, just because it's visually extraordinary. The framing, so many men, all these policemen, and you shot it in super widescreen. I've always gone back to that film visually because I've never seen somebody command putting so many bodies in a frame and dramatizing it in a way that uh, that that just worked um, and the music is amazing and the tone it feels like it feels like a feel, at the end it becomes slightly south american in its feeling in terms of its flavor and the, yeah just great movie and and so when i was asked to make living and they said oh it's based on ikaru i had to go ikaru 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 <laughs> and i went back and saw it again just once and it's like of course yes i've seen this movie and so maybe it's a good thing that it wasn't like the, if I was asked to make high and low, I would definitely say no. <laughs> could you, could you remake high and low? Cause that seems like the most, one of the most difficult and most underrated films to remake. It's just so, it's such a perfect film, especially with the, yeah. the pacing. It's just impossible. Yeah. Right? Just like this, there's those, those scenes in the police station with all the police. I mean, like an ocean of faces, like only Kurosawa can, can choreograph drama in these big, long, wide takes, which he did in Rashomon, of course. And, but there was you know, there were different. There were like action films, like high and lows, but police procedural, and this miss, missing kid thing, and the drama, and the train sequences. And I would definitely say no. I would just be like, that movie cannot be remade. <laughs> so maybe it's a good thing I wasn't too close to, to Ikaru. This is very hard to sum up in a soundbite, but you're, we're talking about visual cinema. What is it like to actually have a ten-year friendship, working relationship? with with jamie as far as just both of you growing as filmmakers and i know it's hard to sum up but how did you what is that like and how was that an advantage as far as living goes as far as approaching the visual landscape of this film it's a it's a it's a shorthand you know it's 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 knowing each other's taste it's knowing each other's way of working um i think the other thing is that you know obviously we've we've grown you know we've, we've both expanded in how we work and the things we do so there's also you're bringing to the to the relationship a lot of new stuff um and but it's i will you know jamie and i work together on on three films in south africa and living and but you know the 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 team that i have in south africa i worked with all of them that i mean i had the same production designer the same costume designer same producers you know i, I the, the team that i have in south africa is the team that i've made pretty much most of my stuff with um so it, it's sort of what i'm used to i'm used to having the same group of people after watching your film loved it even though i'm a huge kurosawa enthusiast I, I thought you did a great job one of the biggest surprises for me was the score how that that was a home run it was it how did how did you get to that and can you just talk about that collaboration because that wasn't that was amazing yeah it was a huge challenge for emily because um I, you know, the, the score of this movie is made up of fair various components. It's made up of things that I knew that I was going to have in the film, like at the beginning and the end, you know, 
wanting the Dvorak at the beginning and the Vaughan Williams at the end and knowing that we didn't have to replace those. I wanted them to be part of the film's period, important kind of period elements. Um, and then there are bits in the middle where I also knew I was going to use this big band stuff, which I just loved the idea of because it, didn't feel, it felt so not very British. And when Bull walks out of the building and when we do the passage of time, when he's been skiving, you know, that stuff is all American and old and trumpets and just jazz. And I loved it. Um, and then Emily had to just, you know, fill in all these gaps and she had to deliver all of these bigger emotional Scenes and one of the biggest challenges for her was that the piece of music we play, uh, there are two back to back, but the, the one is like seven minutes and the next is eight minutes, where she's gonna she's this range of things going on. And I had a piece of temp music in there for months that we was that we ultimately were cutting it too. Uh, and we were showing everyone that we were showing the distributors and we were showing test audiences and people were responding and crying and. And all I kept thinking, poor Emily would sit there. She's like, I have to replace this music. I have to, I have to create an equal or better version of this stuff so that it works in the same way as, as, the, as, the, as the temp. And the temp was all by Philip Glass. And so it, oh, was, <laughs> it was just this mountain that she had to climb. And, and, and she did. I mean, I think it was just you know we I I, I kept her close I she, I came I made sure she came and saw cuts of the film from the very beginning. Uh, she came to the set. You know I, I I started the process with her very early because I thought it was necessary just to get her into the headspace. Um, but yeah, I think I think it was super stressful. I think it was a very big ask, and I'm incredibly impressed that she delivered in spades. Yes. Awesome. Speaking of delivering, Amy Lou Wood, just, I, I just was amazed by her performance. You know, I, I, she really grounds the narrative. And how, how did you come upon her as this pivotal role? Why was she the right choice for you as a storyteller? You know, when you watch loads of tapes and you're looking and you're casting, you're always looking for the feeling. You're always going, you, you see somebody do it and you go, ah, oh, that's it. You know, that's, that's the gateway. I can, I can work on, I can build on that. I can play with that. I can, I can direct that. Uh, and we had a wonderful collection of actresses audition for this movie. And, but there's always that one, I feel like, and I like, I, I always hope to find that one. It was the same with Alex Sharp, you know, so loads of people and you see Alex, and you just go, it has to be Alex because they just bring something that maybe aligns with my imagination of the character. Um, and with Amy, it was very much, and I think, you know, the interesting thing about Amy is that she can do a role like this and the world will kind of hopefully get to know a lot more of her. But what she's doing right now is this wonderful kind of tone. But I also know that inside of Amy, is an, she could do a multitude of different tones. And so I think you're just going to see with Amy Lee Wood that you, the minute you think you know what she is and what she's like as an actress, she's going to do something that you'd be like, wow, she's also so many other things. You know, Oliver, big pic picture with... Kurosawa's film and now your film, do you have an idea of why this story is so resonant with people? It sticks with people because the big theme is the impermanence of things. And that's very heartbreaking when you look at the big picture. Do you have a broad scope on why this movie really affects so many people? And it's sort of a, a life lesson in cinema and in the world. I think there's a large, a large chunk of its adultness because it's, it's, it's an adult form and it has an adult kind of intelligence and i think a large part of that is the is the brain of ishiguro you know he he's a he's a, a deep thinking man and he's obviously evidential in his you know extraordinary novels and 
and he's, he, he has a very complex and complicated uh, interest in the nature of humankind um, and the nature of our sort of blind spots and our moralities and our, and our, our, our sacrifices. And all of his work is humanist in some way. And he's interested now, particularly in the recent past, about the emergence of AI and technology and how that's influ- influenced his work as a, as a novelist. You know, he, this movie has always started with a super strong headspace behind it where there was a, a writer who, who was building a character with a real, with real world kind of context uh, and real dimension. And so I think that when you have that kind of foundation in the pay, on the page for everyone, it's really, you know, it, we can't really go wrong. You know, the actors have so much they can draw down into and I have so much I can draw down into. So it, it allows us to hopefully produce an emotion here on the tops, you know, on the top soil for the audience that has real depth. And then I think that's what people feel. People feel things when things seem to have volume to them and there's complexity. I think you don't feel something when you can, when it, when it just seems incredibly flaky or surface or tinfoil. Then, you know. Oliver, final question right off. This is a very tough one, but right off the top of your head, can you, I, this huge list, but can you right off the top of your head, can you name one of your all time favorite movies? And what is it about the specific film? I know we mentioned a couple of the Kurosawa's film, but just, Name one movie that really speaks to you today, and it's one of your favorites. Uh, from any t- from any period. Yeah, any period. Um, what do I watch a lot? <laughs> I'm trying to think. <laughs> um, I watch. I've watched many uh, things. Actually, there are loads of films that I watch over and over and over. I mean, I, I've 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 watched a lot of Hitchcock in my life. I I I think I've learned about control from Hitchcock. I, 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 I sort of marveled at his imagery a lot when I was a student and younger. Um, and I've watched the movie Rope many times. I've, I, I, think I've, I think I always think that the movie like Rope made me feel that if Hitchcock was alive today and was working today, the things that he would do, we would not, I don't think anyone else would probably imagine because the ingenuity of rope, the ingenuity of, of his impulse to tell the story with these very, with this very long single takes and the, the way they built that set and the way that they designed drama that only looks in one direction. I mean, I, the idea of shooting a movie that doesn't feel like a play, but is clearly designed like a play visually. Um, and the tension, you know, starting with the killing, uh, the slow discovery I, I have analyzed and gone back to that movie countless times. I have like nuanced, I've, I've, I've dissected absolutely every choice that he makes, particularly casting, particularly the, the sort of measured way that he plays with depth. And, you know, the one other thing about, I don't know if you are a fan of rope, but one of the key, one of the key kind of brilliant production design elements is that the, it's shot on a stage. And so the, the backdrop is a live backdrop and he designed it so that it would naturally start to f- fall into darkness. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a backdrop that has got lights in it that allows it to look like a natural sunset. So as the long takes continuing, you're, you're not even remembering that the thing in the background, which is not real, it's a fake New York city is actually setting. It's, it's on a, it's on a timer. So now they've designed a visual that is doing that. So it's just craft, amazing craft. And, if he had what we had today, if he had steady cams and if he had the digital effecting that we can do, I mean, I can't imagine what Alfred Hitchcock would have made today. Yeah. Oliver, thank you so much for your time. And before you go, I really love Mafia, but could you have made living before Mafia? Meaning, did you need to live a, 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 lot, a little bit more life before tackling on this project? 
don't think I think it's definitely a sense in the sense that I had the same feeling when I was asked to make Moffy to to take on the book and adapt the book. I thought, why? I don't know anything about this. I didn't want to know anything about it. It just felt like a, such a dark thing. Uh, and then I sort of realized that maybe that was the reason to do it. And I think that kind of choice making was the same choice making that I made when I was asked to make living, which was I just leaned into the fear of the unknown. And I sort of continue to do so now. Maybe I do so now with less fear, but I, I am being asked to do a lot of weird things these days. So I'm, <laughs> let's see what I do next. As, as usual, thank you, Oliver, for your time. Really love your films. Thank you so much, Greg. Pleasure to meet you. I'm Greg Surzavasti with Deepest Dream. Pleasure. Hi, Greg. Very nice to meet you. Yeah, no, no, first off, you know, I, I, I think the first time I saw Akira was three, four years ago and loved it. But f- wondering when did this movie first cross your path as a, as a cinephile? And over the years, I'm sure that experience for you on a human level has deepened. And is that one of the reasons why it has stayed with you because of the themes? Yes, I think so. I mean, to answer your first question, I, I saw this film uh, when I was about 11 or 12, something like that. I was very alert to any Japanese movies that were being shown on British television back in those days because I was a Japanese kid growing up in England and it was very difficult to see anything Japanese. And so whatever came on uh, on TV, I, I would watch it. And there weren't many... Japanese movies shown um, on British television. I was too young to go to kind of art house cinemas and things like this. Um, so it's mainly Kurosawa movies and, and a couple of Ozu movies, and that was it. Um, but when I saw Ikiru, I mean, you, you, you think, you know, it wouldn't appeal to somebody of that age, but actually it made a big impact on me. Um, and I think it was partly because from the age of 11, I had started to... Um, I had to commute by train to my school and I was on the same commuter line as, as all those office workers uh, going into London. And I would travel in with them. They were very crowded trains and they all had bowler hats and umbrellas in those days, like they do in, in, in uh, living. Um, and I, I kind of always thought that the natural progression for, for school kids like, like us would be that, you know, we would swap our school uniforms for those, bowler hats, and we all become office workers. And so when I saw Ikiru, although it was about Japanese office workers, you know, I thought, well, okay, you know, this might be something like the kind of life I might lead. And yet this movie was saying, all right, despite the terminal illness stuff, this movie was saying, look, you know, even if you've got a life like this, there's a way to transform it. You don't have to be crushed by all this paperwork and bureaucracy you have to make an effort but there's something to work for there's something to fight for and you can turn your life into something magnificent i mean you may not get a huge amount of praise from the outside world but you know it could mean everything to you and i found that really inspirational you know um and so it's a movie that stayed with me ever since then i'd say and um to get to the second part of your question i mean has it has it changed? Did you ask something like, has the movie yeah. changed? Over the years, you know, I, I think maybe at a, at a younger point, you're thinking about the craft of the narrative, the shift and the shift and how skillful that was. But maybe as one grows as a human, the fact that the impermanence of, of situations really becomes resonant as, as one gets older, I'm assuming. So. Well, 
maybe because I was so young, I I wasn't so aware of the craft. You know, the, the, I mean, the, now I can see that there's something quite radical about this about the Kurosawa Ogoni Hashimoto script. You know, you kill off the the narrator <laughs> two thirds of the way in the movie very suddenly, and then he only exists in people's memories. You know, I, I, that's a very radical and dangerous thing to do. But I didn't really, you know, I was too young to kind of think in those terms. And I think the movie just spoke to me uh, in the way it was supposed to do. But today, you know, well, let's say recently, when I was thinking actually in terms of um, how you might remake it, then I, uh, you know, a colder, more ruthless side of me set in. And I, uh, and I was saying to myself, look, that's going to have to change. We, in our version, we'll prefer it to be more like this and more like that, you know. So that that process started to set in, and that's I think that's what happens when you adapt things, whether you're, you're adapting from a book to the screen or from an old movie to a new movie. I think you have this almost schizoid kind of situation where one part of you loves the original thing. Uh, and and reveres it, and another part of you is quite ruthless and says, you know, we're going to bring our own stuff to this, and we're going to change this and this and this. And in terms of the actual craft that you're talking about, I mean that that last act in the Kurosawa movie where people talk while they get drunk that goes on for a long, long time. I I thought, you know, I, 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 we should do that differently. You know, <laughs> and in general, I thought our movie should be shorter. And actually, it is. It ended up 40 minutes shorter than the Kurosawa film. And perhaps most crucially, two things that for me were crucial, uh, and probably from the very first time I started to write the screenplay, all the way through when uh, Oliver Hermanus came on board and we discussed all the ways we might change things. The two, the two main points of difference for me is is one that one one was a is the actual atmosphere around the main character, the main actor. I, I always thought, as much as I loved the Kurosawa movie, I found the main character too mournful, too melancholic, too maudlin. His his angst was all on his face all the time, and his posture and his gait as he walked around everywhere. Um, I always wondered what would have happened if another actor, not Takashi Shimura, but another actor who you probably know from the Ozu films, Chishu Ryu, the actor who plays the father in movies like Tokyo Story and Late Spring. If somebody like him had been in the main part instead, who always seemed to have a kind of stoic smile, never mind what was happening, you know, however sad his life was getting, he would have a stoic smile, a kind of, he would retain a sense of irony and humour. Uh, what if somebody like that was in the main part? And, and my feeling was that you know, Bill Nye was the closest thing we had to Chishu Ryu. <laughs> and it would be a different, tonally it would be different. Okay, so that, that was one of the key things, that the atmosphere around the central character should be different. And and the other thing was that I thought our film should be more optimistic and uh, we should introduce a younger generation, a substantial characters who would, who would be seen to be getting some of the legacy uh, an inspiration from what Mr. Williams does, because I felt that we had the benefit of hindsight. And we know that that generation after the war did manage to rebuild something you know, quite admirable, both in England and in um, uh, Britain, I should say, both in Britain and, and in Japan after the war, despite the 
fact that their countries have been completely shattered. You know, Kurosawa mm-hmm. didn't know that when he when he and his team are making this movie, they don't know where things are going to go in Japan. They've just had an awful time. They've had a militaristic regime in power. They've had atomic bombs, economic you know, economy shattered, infrastructure sh- shattered, societal norms shattered. You know, they don't know where it's going to go. And the film is quite dark and pessimistic. I thought ours should be more optimistic, which is see a younger generation that will move Britain into the sixties. You know? So, so those were the two things I thought we should we should change. You know, that's so amazing that you're mentioning this because my second question to you would be just during your youth, and you mentioned Ozu. Were films like Tokyo Story or my personal favorite Late Spring? Did they really shape you as a, as a human being? Where you put the humanity and the human condition first before you enter the world of becoming an artist or a writer. And maybe that those, I don't know, I don't want to say skill sets, but though that uh, shared human condition helped you uh, power you through your life as a writer. So, or maybe that's. No, I think that's, I mean, when I was telling you earlier that uh, you can only see a, a small number of movies uh, in England, I, I, I would say that, you know, there's a bunch of Kurosawa's and Tokyo Story and actually not late spring. It was an autumn afternoon, which is like a a, a later version by Ozu of late spring. You know, it's kind of the same story. Um, and actually, uh, earlier on today, I, I did an interview with Cri- Criterion.com where they asked me to choose um, 10 favorite movies. And uh, actually, I chose late spring as one of them. It's interesting. I chose that one rather than Tokyo Story or autumn afternoon. Um uh, so we share that, <laughs> but I still I think Tokyo Story is a is a profound and beautiful film, and it's. Uh, um, uh, but all, yeah, all these films also had a tremendous impact on me, both at a kind of a, a technique level, I suppose. Uh, um, as a novelist, you know, I had learned from Ozu that you could actually be quiet and slow. Uh, you didn't have to be worrying all the time about how. You, about losing the attention of your reader, or if you're writing a screenplay, your audience. And, and I did start my career by writing one novel, then two screenplays for television, and then writing my second novel. So I was th- I used to think think in both you know forms in those days. But I, I learned that your know, slowness could be mesmerizing uh, and compelling uh, from Ozu, and that it allowed you to actually do things that maybe you couldn't do when you were trying to keep audiences on the edge of their seats. Um, uh, Kurosawa uh, um, sometimes taught me the opposite, that that things like fights and battles could actually be powerfully emotional. They they weren't just like cinema pyrotechnics. You you could have cathartic moving moments in in battle scenes, you know, the, the, the ending of the Seven Samurai is, what, is an incredibly moving scene. But also, you know, Kurosawa always had that thing that he has in Ikiru. You know, the, the ending of Seven Samurai is quite similar to Ikiru. Your best efforts are going to get forgotten. You know, people aren't going to thank you. For, you know, uh, they're just going to use you for <laughs> they discard you and forget you. So you got to find some sense of success and failure in a very lonely personal way. Yeah. My, my final question is just on the narrow scope of cinema. Okay. And I, is it just coincidence, fate that over your career, you've worked with some 
just really celebrated visionaries of um, filmmakers uh, because I, is there, how do you do, how were you able to do that? Because you just look at your resume and you just great filmmaker after great filmmaker, as far as collaboration, how did you set up on that path? I guess. Well, I, I, I don't work in film that much. I mean, I've, I've just been very lucky in that, um, uh, you know, people like James Ivory and um, people like that and Mark Romanek and, uh, and the screenwriter Alex Garland, you know, people like that have been attracted to my novels and they wanted to adapt them. You know, um, um, uh, you know we were very lucky to find Oliver Hermanus. Um, Stephen Woody, the producer, and I were, were the two people on this project for a long time. We were developing it and and so on, try, trying to raise development finance. And, uh, um, uh, and But, you know, we were, we were searching around for somebody. I guess we didn't want actually a... This sounds kind of racist, but we didn't want a British director. Now, there might have been a British director who was right for us, but we didn't want our film to, because it was so much, so English in a way, we didn't want it to look like a certain kind of modern British film. You know, we wanted an outsider, but in outlook and, and, and stylistically. And when we saw Oliver, you know, he, he made this movie Moffy, we both, Stephen Woody and I both recognized something. We thought that no, this guy is a real monster talent. And if we can persuade him to do this, I mean, we will get the movie that we wanted. I've never, I've never kind of had any kind of big policy of, you know, trying to collaborate with great people. I mean, I've just been very fortunate. Um, and, and, you know, my relationship with James Ivory goes back to when, when he uh, adapted the remains of the day. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's great to talk to you.